Hi, and welcome to Reasonable and Necessary, Australia's premier podcast series on everything you ever wanted to know about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Brought to you by the Summer Foundation. I'm your host, Dr. George Talaforis, and in this episode, I'm speaking with the NDIA CEO, Martin Hoffman, about what's new in the NDIS for 2022. We talk about co-design, NDIS appeals, COVID, and much more. So check it out. Hey Martin, thanks for joining us. George, good to be with you this afternoon. Martin, uh, we're going to focus on what's uh, coming up for the NDIS in 2022. But before we go there, I think it's important that we uh, talk about COVID. Uh, it's been a very hard summer uh, for people with disabilities and uh, I, I'd love to hear from you about some of the initiatives or some of the assistance that the NDIA has been providing people with and how people can access that 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 support. No, sure, George, and it's a, a good thing to talk about. Uh, it certainly has been a hard summer and not the one that uh, participants and everybody was uh, was looking forward to. Um, of course, it does seem now the uh, the good news that the uh, that the Omicron wave has, has peaked and so certainly daily infections and hospitalizations are much, much lower than they were even just a few weeks ago, which is great news. And of course, all the way through this, um, you know, uh, infection and uh, mortality rates for participants in the scheme have been a lot lower than the general population overall. Now, and that's an important point, that um, infection and death rates have been lower for participants than the general population. Now, that's not to say there haven't been some real impacts uh, of the pandemic, uh, and, you know, it's been a hard summer. I guess we've been really focused on doing everything we can to uh, maintain critical supports that participants need, uh, and working directly with providers to do that, uh, and also working with, with participants to do that. And that's been through a range of things to help access to vaccines, to boosters, to help access to rats, both in physical distribution, that's rapid antigen tests, of course, uh, the, new, the new word rats, uh, for distribution physically to major providers, uh, funding arrangements, uh, use of plans, uh, etc. So. Uh, certainly, there's been disruption. Uh, we understand that, uh, but we've been working very hard directly with, as I said, providers, uh, directly with participants through participant representative organisations uh, to really try and ensure that, to the greatest extent possible, in the middle of the disruption of a pandemic, uh, the essential supports are, are maintained to the greatest extent possible. So I know that there was a decision uh, relatively recently to. Uh, support people to uh, claim the cost of their rapid antigen tests if they if they needed that in terms of uh, continuing their support. What other kinds of things are, are being uh, funded? 
Well, of course, the whole purpose and, and way the scheme works is to uh, use the funding uh, within the core funding uh, and the capability funding you know, flexibly to meet particular needs as they as they change, and that's uh, that's continued on. Uh, as I mentioned, there's been the, the support for people to both workers and participants uh, to get vaccinated, uh, to get get to get boosted, um, and they've they've been important things as, as well. Some of the arrangements we've had in place for some time now, of course, uh, during uh, the two years now of the pandemic, have continued around uh, uh, telehealth use, uh, supports delivered via video, uh, the use of iPad technology uh, in that sort of situation. So those things have been, have been continuing. Do you think that there's been additional costs um, imposed on people's plans as a result? And uh, I'm concerned that there is... Uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, costs that people didn't predict um, as a result of the, the pandemic, and that's putting a lot of pressure on people's NDIS plans. If you're paying for rat tests and PPE and all of those additional things, uh, that can put a lot of strain on a person's funding package. Well, George, we've continued to see uh, strong use of people's funding packages. Uh, the expenditure's been uh, consistent with the forecasts and with the budgets. Uh, funding is, uh, spending has continued to increase uh, on the previous year, and that's all as, as expected. Uh, overall, there's still plenty of room in people's plans in terms of utilisation of spend versus the plan budget. Uh, and that gives the flexibility for use uh, of the plan for different needs as, as needs change. Uh, and of course, where plans have been uh, or are you know, very close to limit, uh, then that's probably a good time for a review of the plan. Um, but that's, that's been working reasonably well. And so we're seeing plan adjustments being made and we're seeing plan spend at the level expected uh, with still capacity uh, between the spend level and the budget level. Now, last time that you and I uh, had a conversation, it was uh, last year, and I recall there was uh, a hot topic at the time. Independent assessments was a, a big priority for the agency. Um, but a lot has changed since then, hasn't it, Martin? Yeah, well... We've uh, continued with the pandemic and, of course, uh, the decision that ministers made not to proceed with uh, not to proceed with independent assessments in the middle of last year uh, has changed the environment. But uh, let's uh, let's talk a bit bit more about that, George. How did you feel when that happened? Oh, that's an interesting uh, question. Sure. Uh, look, honest answer. I was disappointed. Uh, I've been very open since then in terms of uh, acknowledging the difficulties, uh, acknowledging the real concerns that were there in the uh, in the community, and I certainly uh, regret that. And I've expressed that uh, a number of times uh, formally and uh, in in Parliament and uh, in writing in our annual report. And so I absolutely believe that. At the same time, also I know. 
myself and uh, the thousands of staff at the NDIA were working in complete good faith, uh, attempting to do the best job possible to make the scheme uh, as best as possible. And the sort of issues that independent assessments were attempting to address uh, remain with us. And that is, uh, how do we make good and fair decisions uh, about access to the scheme and then what is reasonable and necessary. Uh, and we need to continue working. And I say we meaning uh, the agency and the community participants. We need to continue working on the best way to answer those questions. What information do, do we need? And then how is that information used and translated into decisions? But we're going to do it differently, aren't we, Martin? I, I, uh... I, I know that uh, there's been a uh, commitment that's been made to work with the disability community um, in order to um, make sure that we don't make those same mistakes. So we'll talk about that a bit, a bit later. But um, uh, I promise viewers uh, that you're going to tell us about your our top three priorities for, for 2022. So um, please tell us what's, uh, what's on the cards. Yeah, so thanks, George. Um, yeah, three things I'm happy to sort of uh, mention. Firstly, uh, there is just the ongoing operations of the scheme. Uh, this is a really big scheme now. We have 500,000 participants at the start of this year. Uh, we make something like 10 or 11,000 decisions every week uh, around access, around plans, around plan re reviews. And we just need to continue doing those operations uh, as well as possible, make, making them timely against the participant service guarantee, uh, making them uh, as reasonable as possible, uh, making them well communicated, consistent, predictable uh, and and timely. Look, there's been a lot of stuff in the media, also on the, the 17th report about um, people's plans being uh, drastically cut. And uh, I was very concerned to see, you know, there was a story where the person uh, had a plan, um, uh, I think it was cut by, by 30%. And, this led to them not being able to leave the house. I'm hearing lots of these um, experiences. What, what do you have to say about yeah, that? Yeah, and George, I hope you're also hearing about the experiences of the plans that are increasing by 30% and by 50% uh, because those stories are just as many. And I think that's the point where the scheme's at now. We've been very open about the facts about the data in our quarterly reports that show that the average plan change at review is now about one or two percent. So consistent with inflation. Uh, so on average, plans are going up at review by one or two percent. But there's a big variation around that average. Some plans, yes, are going down uh, and just as many plans are going up by uh, small and large amounts. And that reflects that we're at the point now where 
we're making decisions about, you know, there might have been a prior capital investment in a plan, there might have been a prior capacity building investment in a plan that's worked its way through and so changes are being, being made. So we're making individual decisions about individual plans going up and down uh, and averaging out at around 1% or 2% uh, increases at the reviews. And then people's spending of those plans continues to grow strongly. So on average, the spend for the last six months is 12% higher than the spend for the previous 12 months for the same group of people. So there is still plenty of funding in people's plans and that's increasingly being used and that's a good thing. We all want to see that. We want to see it used and used well. Yeah, I understand that, you know, capital costs, a lot of that stuff is up front and, you know, you would hope that um, if you've got capacity to build in funding up front that over time the, the need for that to go down, you know, would, would be absolutely reasonable and necessary. Um, but I'm just thinking when I hear of people's, you know, core supports, um, dropping significantly, I, 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 I do worry that, and I, and I hear in the community that there's real concerns um, that, that, that plans are, are being slashed. But you're George, saying I that's really, not the case. George, I really, as I've just said, the facts are that on average plans go up, which means just as many plans are being increased than are, than are being decreased. And I don't think words like slashed help the community or help individuals uh, in, that, in that sense. Um, we're very transparent about the data, very transparent about the results. As I said, there are just as many plans going up by large amounts as there are by plans going down. Let's talk about your other priorities then. Sure. Uh, so let's talk about the operations one. The other is the one that you started to touch on uh, a bit earlier, which is uh, around co-design and uh, around reform and development and improvement of the system. As I said, we've really got to focus on how we make the best possible decisions that people can have confidence in uh, and can understand and are consistent. Uh, and that depends upon getting the right information and then translating that information into decisions. And the process we use for that is, I think, the highest priority in terms of how we improve this scheme. And that's what ministers at the middle of last year called upon us all, uh, the agency and participants and their representatives, to work together to co-design a better way of doing that. And uh, I'm absolutely focused on making real progress on that this, this year. Okay, so on, on that, because yeah, sure. I know that we use the word uh, co-design a lot in the sector. Um, some people, uh, you know, hear the word and they think, oh, there's another jargon word that uh, hasn't got a lot of meaning behind it. I, I don't feel that way. Uh, but I do think that uh, it's important to be clear about what we mean when we say co-design. So what, what, do you, what do you understand the, as the meaning behind the term and the practice of co-design? Yes, thanks, George. I mean, that's a great question about uh, what is co-design. Look, it can mean many different things to many different people. 
Um, and it's got a very particular technical meaning for some with a body of knowledge and a techniques and approaches to be, to be used. Um, at its core, what I'm uh, thinking is it's got to have a, gen a genuine uh, attitude uh, a genuine mindset uh, of uh, engagement, of listening, of understanding, of seeking uh, the solutions together, uh, having first worked on what the problems are, rather than um, presenting solutions and asking for feedback on an answer already decided. So it's got to be a genuine openness to uh, discussion, engagement in a range of different ways that might be done around let's talk about the problems and then let's together talk about the solutions. Now, there's always an, an act and there's powers and there's laws and there's authorities and uh, ultimate decision-making responsibilities, etc. And co-design can't take away from that. But within that context of still operating within the act and the powers and responsibilities of various parties, there's an awful lot we can do uh, to uh, come up with the way we all want the scheme to work uh, t together. And you know, I'm, I'm really excited about the opportunities for what we can do in that space this year. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited and I, um, you know, I think there's yeah, made you know, a, a good point. It's about you know, meaningfully engaging people, and it's not about the the traditional you know tick the box approach that um, sometimes you see. Um, and uh, obviously, you know that 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 conversation that we can have together as as uh, as people with disabilities and the agency. Um, it's a really important conversation, and I, you know, I, I had a good experience with uh, working with some of your team members uh, on the self-management uh, work mm. and, and the, the important mm. work that's going on there. And it was very, very different to what I had experienced in the past. It was, it was uh, refreshing that be involved at the start, you involve people as you're developing the ideas, as you're considering the policy, and you develop it with people. You know, in the disability, you know, recently say uh, nothing about us without us. Yeah, and that's I think that's, that's where we need to focus on. Good. No, that's, uh, and I'm glad you mentioned that example of the self-management policy work, um, because as well as that, the big one of the decision making, you know, how we do uh, a person-centered model of assessment and decision making. This is such a big scheme now that is uh, quite complex, covers many different people at different stages of their life uh, with different sorts of disabilities. Uh, that there's so much to do. Uh, and we talked about the self-management policy. We know there's uh, also work of the same type we want to do around home and living supports, uh, as they're so fundamental, around um, participant safety policy, around um, support for decision-making by participants and ensuring we are living up to the 
to the ideal that the scheme was built on, which was to increase the ability for people with disability to make their own decisions. Uh, the psychosocial recovery framework um, is another really important policy area that we've been working on well uh, in this in this same way. So uh, there's, uh, as I said, there's so much to do, uh, and we've got to find ways to get the right people uh, who are interested, who are knowledgeable, who are affected by those policies uh, involved right from the start. There is a lot to do, but I do think that when you work alongside people in conversation, um, it might take a bit longer to work out the policy and get it right, um, but the long-term benefits are, are definitely mm -hmm. worth it. And, and I think in the long term, you, you, you do save time because the policy setting is, is, is uh, supported by the, the community. No, I think that's right. It uh, brings to mind the old story of the tortoise and, and the hare and uh, you know, which, uh, which, uh, which approach gets there uh, faster in, in the end. Absolutely. Other areas of time? Well, I've talked about two, uh, which was the um, straightforward operations day-to-day. -day. Uh, secondly, the co-design work, particularly around uh, information gathering and decision making. Then the third area is really to make sure that in the midst of all that work, we don't lose sight of the outcomes that the scheme was uh, set up to, to achieve. And we mentioned two, uh, firstly, employment. Uh, that's a super important area. A lot of the scheme was built around the idea that uh, we need to increase participation of people with disability in the workforce. Our levels are low compared to uh, other developed countries. Uh, and so we've really got to make sure we push hard on the employment outcome. And then the second I'd mention of outcomes is really the outcomes for kids, uh, kids with developmental delay, uh, particularly, and uh, initial diagnosis of, of, of autism. And of course, we're seeing they're an increasing proportion of the scheme now. Um, over half of uh, entry into the scheme every month now uh, are young kids, uh, usually with developmental delay uh, and or autism. And getting the outcomes of improvement, of catch-up, uh, is of that early intervention approach, uh, which is a key part of the scheme, uh, is one of those outcome areas that I think is that, is that is super important for us this year. I noticed that uh, in the reports around sustainability, there's a lot of observations by the agency and by the minister that the early intervention uh, cohort or the group that comes in to early intervention are uh, staying in the scheme or they're not leaving the scheme as as quickly as had been predicted. Is that is that a concern? That is a concern, but not a concern uh, necessarily from a financial perspective. The concern is, is the early intervention investment working? You know, uh, that's the point uh, that the focus is on. Uh, we want kids who need it to be in the scheme or to be supported in other ways uh, so that they get the early intervention, as the words say, 
so that a real difference is made. Um, and that's where the, the, the focus is on. Yes, that then translates into the spreadsheets and the predictions that the Productivity Commission made about exit rates and so, so forth. But the focus is not on that. That will follow if we get the supports and the outcomes right, then the mathematics uh, takes care of itself. Now, are you concerned that the mainstream systems like education are not doing their part and, and therefore it's uh, uh, becoming an issue for the NDIS and the sustainability? So I think uh, certainly there was a big focus on the NDIS uh, in the last few years as you know, the thing uh, for disability. Um, I think the new Australia's disability strategy, the new 10-year strategy, uh, hopefully really signals a recommitment of all governments, because all governments have signed up to the ADS, that um, a genuinely inclusive society uh, is not just about having a great NDIS, but is about thinking in all our uh, service systems, in all our employment areas, in health and education and justice and transport, that there is a real focus. And you know, so I'm hopeful that the ADS is the signal, Australia's disability strategy is the signal of a recommitment to uh, a society-wide, a sector-wide uh, focus on inclusion. Uh, hopefully, you know, the appointment of Dylan Alcott as Australian of the Year, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, is, a, is a symbol of, of, of that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll look forward to, uh, you know, the work he does this year as well uh, as, as, as a symbol of saying it's not just the NDIS, it's uh, all our sectors and all our service systems. Absolutely. I think it's very exciting that we have a... Australia year who uh, is going to be advocating strongly on on disability issues. Very much so. And the um, the employment issues that I was speaking about before, I know, is an area uh, very close to, to to Dylan's heart. Absolutely, and we know that employment has uh, so many benefits for people, but we also know that not everyone can can have a job. So, yeah, it's uh, important to remember. Martin, uh, any last messages for our audience and uh, in terms of uh, you know, what you are hoping for, for the year ahead? Sure. So, George, I mean, really, uh, it's in essence the nature of what we've just been doing here for the last half hour, uh, having a great conversation. Uh, being uh, open and honest and genuine about things, even where we might not agree fully, uh, but have, having the conversation. So I'm looking to, forward to having another conversation with you if you'll have me back later in the year uh, and uh, having more conversations uh, with, the, with, with participants, with their representatives, uh, as we try and uh, make the scheme uh, everything we want it to be. Thanks, Martin. Looking forward to our next chat. Okay. Bye now. Bye. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. To be notified of future episodes, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. Thanks for watching, and until next time, stay well. 
and reasonable.